0: I'm Marty Moskoway, welcome to The Connection. Back in 1915, President Woodrow Wilson screened The Birth of a Nation, a film that celebrated white supremacy in the KKK at the White House for a small audience. Earlier this year, President Biden screened the film Till at the White House about the gruesome murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till in Mississippi in the 1950s and the campaign by his mother, Mamie Till, for justice for her son. Biden told the invited guests, we should know everything about our history. That's what great nations do. There is a battle today, as you know, in many of our schools about how and what and whether to teach the truth about the complicated American story. This includes banning books deemed controversial, watering down curricula about, about black history and whitewashing the ugly parts of our past and present. Well, today on The Connection, what history and psychology can teach us about the importance of being honest about who we are as a nation and who we are as individuals, understanding the resistance and embracing the difficult truths. Let me introduce our guests. Dolly Chug is social psychologist, professor at the Stern School of Business at NYU, author of a book that just came out, A More Just Future. Dolly, nice to have you with us on The Connection.
1: It's great to be back. Thanks, Marty.
0: You're very welcome. Also with us, Hassan Kwame Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at Ohio State University, Editor of Understanding and Teaching the Civil Rights Movement. And Hassan, nice to have you with us on The Connection as well.
2: Great to be
3: with you.
0: In fact, let me begin with you, Hassan. This is not a new argument or debate that's happening, whether in schools or in Congress or in legislatures or probably in people's living rooms as well, this argument about who we are as a country. But do you think there's something unique going on today?
2: You're right. This isn't anything new. Our education and our history in particular has always been politicized. It's always been debated Um, So I think this is the continuation of something that we've seen as long as we have had public education. But context matters and the particular moment in which we live matters. And the way in which education is being politicized in this moment matters. I think it very much has everything to do with an activist generation of young people. In the summer of 2020, we saw the largest protest in American history. And they were demanding for an honest telling of the past, including... Which meant including an end to systemic racism. And I think the politicization of history coming from the political right in the moment is a direct response to that manifestation of activism among young people. So it's an extension of the past but it is absolutely responding to, to incidents in the present.
0: And Dolly, just picking up on that, uh, you write in your book about tracing the murder of George Floyd, the protest by Black Lives Matter and their allies, as this pivotal point that has taken us to this, this fight that we're having about America.
1: It is. It's, it's a pivotal point in the sense that a wider um, portion of our country is paying attention. Of course, for many people, uh, they've been for, for centuries making this argument that we need to tell the complete truth, that we need to acknowledge, accept, and learn from, as you said, what's happened in the past. I think I, I loved how Hassan, Hassan explained that it is really, however, a set of voices that have now become at the forefront that are demanding we do better. And where, where I think we might need some help is figuring out how to do that, even amongst those who claim that they want to.
0: Well, picking up on that, Hassan, um, so this is a good conversation to have, correct? Not just the one we're having on the radio today, but just as, as a nation.
2: Not just a good conversation. I think it's an absolutely necessary conversation. Um, and it's something that we need to have, but it has to be rooted in both honesty and respect. Um, One of the things that we are encountering while having this conversation is that we're not actually dealing with history as it happened. We're debating whether or not to talk about history that occurred versus sort of a nostalgia about a history that never happened. And so if we're going to have this conversation, we have to be honest not only about the past, but we have to be honest with ourselves about why we need to have this conversation about the past, because the past informs and influences the present.
0: Well, Dolly, again, picking up on that, and, and um, there is something unique about uh, America, something very paradoxical uh, that we're founded on these ideals, ideas on ideals of liberty and, and equality. And, of course, uh, the founders were enslavers. As human beings, how do we deal with paradox? Is that something that we are
1: comfortable with? Well, I have good news and I have bad news. Um, No, we're not comfortable with it. It's that instinct we have to, like, straighten the picture on the wall. We want things to to sort of line up and fit um, in our brains. That's an automatic reflex we have uh, to look for consistency, That's the bad news. The good news is, however, that our brains are also robust and evolved, that we can override that impulse for consistency. Um, It's what psychologists call adopting a paradox mindset. And um, scholars like Wendy Smith and others have shown us that when we simply, it's like as simple as just telling your brain, these two things can coexist. Thomas Jefferson can have authored an extraordinary document about liberty and freedom and, Can Thomas Jefferson enslaved other human beings at the same time? Both of those things are factual statements, and what the research says is when we tell our brain that a paradox can coexist, paradoxical truths can coexist we actually become more resilient and creative Mm. as a result. It's like all that cognitive fuel that was going to solving an unsolvable problem gets deployed to actually doing what we need to do as opposed to trying to solve that that problem.
0: So you're saying we say to ourselves, both these things can be true and I can live with that.
1: Right. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Rather than trying to insist that one is true or one isn't or I need to... To uh, Even if I'm going to acknowledge both are true, I'm only going to hold one up as the truth I offer others. I'm going to suppress the other one. Um, Here, we can allow both to be true, and then we can figure out what to do about it, as opposed Hmm. to how do I force fit these truths.
0: Uh, Hassan, let me pick up on that. Um, I saw a TED Talk that you gave when you visited uh, James Madison House in uh, Virginia, of course, he, you know, essentially wrote the our Constitution, but you also and and there's a beautiful view he's looking out of his library, obviously, and writing this this incredible document. What's in the cellar? And you went down there.
2: In the cellar is the paradox, is the evidence of the paradox. It's the bricks that were made by the children that he enslaved with their handprints, their little tiny handprints embedded in the bricks. And so when we think about I mean, what has to coexist in our minds, our, 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 our paradoxical mindset, as Dolly Dali, as Dali pointed out, is the fact that the room on, on which, in which James Madison conceived and conceptualized the Bill of Rights rests on a foundation of bricks that were made by the children that he enslaved uh, for his personal pleasure and profit. Uh, now, I will add to that. This is something that we, at least in the classroom uh, have refused to sort of reconcile. We, we, we tend to, all right, we're not going to deal with the bricks. We're going to deal with the constitution. We're going right. to deal with the, the man who wrote it and not the people who enabled him to write it. But this is also something, Marty, that African-Americans have had to deal with, you know, from 1619 to the present, that, that duality, Du Bois talked about the tunis, uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and having to live with both being in America and yet not being of America fully.
0: You know, as you're, and, and I watched that TED Talk, and it was really worth <laughs> worth seeing, Hassan. And I was thinking, I mean, in my own mind, I can intellectually do that. But I'm wondering, as, as a black man yourself, and, and for other African Americans, it's so much more personal, because there were black children in that house who were building that house for James Madison. As a white woman, you know, that's a different experience for me.
2: Yeah, it is. It, it is. it is deeply personal. You can't separate yourself from it. Um, you feel it. Uh, you feel it, uh, you know, when you. So you don't just touch those bricks. You don't just touch those, that legacy of slavery. You actually feel the bricks. You feel the children. You feel the pain. You feel the suffering. But you also feel the resilience. And it is knowing. That despite all of the weight that they had to carry on their shoulders, both adults and children, they survived, they endured. Uh, And so uh, maybe I'll leave it to Dolly to explain how we're able to reconcile with that and move forward. But the two absolutely do exist in your mind. This is why, if I could just add real quick, this is why um, Michelle Obama, you know, on the campaign trail very early on, 2008, you know, she has that moment where she says, This is the first time I'm really proud, you know, to be an American, mm-hmm. to be America. Black, black folk understood exactly what she meant, right? But you know, had you know, white political concerns like, Oh my God, this is shocking. This means you're not patriotic. No, it means that we've really been disappointed in you, white America. And for once, you're showing us that maybe, just maybe, you get it.
0: Well, Dolly, Dolly th- this really points to the fact that history is so personal for all of us, right? Mm.
1: That's right. Absolutely. And it's, you know, and nostalgia came up earlier. Nostalgia is like a sentimental form of, of history. I think Clint Smith has a, a quote in, in his recent book that's something like, um, H- history is what happened, but nostalgia is what you wish happened or something to that effect. And that again, it's it's a psychological need we have. We we do crave that version of history. It and it particularly when it ties to social identities. So, you know, like I'm um, I'm an American. I'm a mom. I'm a, I'm an Indian American. Like these are all identities I I hold dear to myself. And anything that's about the past tied to my identities, it's going to be a little bit extra, kind of prone to that nostalgic lens the problem of course with nostalgia i mean it's it's wonderful and it sells it's a multi-billion dollar industry across music fashion travel nostalgia certainly sells it fills a psychological need but it also uh leaves the seller that asan just described unacknowledged and, and, and unaddressed.
0: In fact, Hassan, you say we love history. No, we hate history. We love nostalgia. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. No, I, I think the nostalgia that we love are the stories about the past that make us feel comfortable in the present. Uh, that's because we don't want to deal with, and I think Dali laid it out beautifully, the, the implications that that kind of hard history, those difficult aspects of the past, have for who we are today, for our social identity today, because our social identity today is very much crafted by who we were collectively in the past, and at minimum, who we think we were in the past.
0: Mm. We're almost up in a, on a break here, but let me just give you a quick chance, uh, Hassan, to just to follow up on that. This this notion about as you have described, the kind of Disneyfication of history that makes us feel so good about ourselves. And there is much to celebrate in the United States of America, but, but not to the detriment of, of, the, of the tough stuff.
2: And that's it, because what we want to do is tell a complete picture. Uh, we want to recognize and celebrate the moments of triumph, the periods of progress, but we actually diminish from those moments of triumph and periods of progress When we ignore the context that led to the need for change, the need to make things better. And so what we want is to tell a complete picture so that kids can understand the whole truth.
0: Well, let's take that uh, very short break, and we'll get back to our conversation talking with Hassan Kwame Jeffries, who is an associate professor of history at Ohio State University, and Dolly Chook, She's a social psychologist, professor of and uh, in, in the business school at NYU. Much more after this very short break, including how to unlearn the things we've learned. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm our, uh, see, <laughs> I almost forgot who I was. I'm Marty Moskowain talking with Dali Chug and Hassan Kwame. Jeffries, we've been talking about... Uh, uh, why we are struggling with our history, the importance of teaching also the difficulty of learning hard history, the challenges of unlearning, how to develop a mental toolkit to reckon honestly with our past and Dolly, if I can just pick up on this this notion of sort of learning and unlearning and we mm. and we do you know we a, a, and you even talk about something called belief grief, where when we have to mm. give up on something that we 've you know, dedicated our lives to believing that there is a kind of grieving process that we have to go through. Walk us through that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's so real. And I I wanted to name it because I I don't want to diminish (laughs) that this is hard psychologically. I mean, it's the honest thing to do as Americans, but it doesn't make it easy. Um, I I tell us, I opened my book with a story about having, I spent a whole year reading to my kids the Little House on the Prairie book series. We even traveled to Minnesota and South Dakota and like took them around to see all the sites and was deeply invested in this story and these values. And I was, quite frankly, like patting myself on the back so much with pride as a parent that I was doing this That I was like pulling muscles. (laughs) And I remember standing there like on a prairie, a literal prairie with my kids in prairie dresses running around and suddenly having this moment of oh my gosh, whose land was this? And realizing that I hadn't, for the whole year, I'd been every night telling them these stories. I had not told them that this land belonged to someone else, that there were communities and civilizations and cultures and families that were destroyed when this little house was built on the prairie. And I didn't know what to do with those emotions. It felt like grief. And it felt like grief that, quite frankly, I wish I could say I dealt with it. But instead, I just suppressed it and like didn't bring it up and didn't talk to my kids about it. And um, I really wished I had known how to do that. And so that's, that's naming belief grief, and then sort of talking about what psychologists know we can do was, was somewhere where I thought I could help us. But to be totally clear, I'm not a historian. No, Hassan I understand. is the expert and it's a real historian. But I, I think I can bring sort of some tools that help us with the psychological, emotional part of this.
0: And I think of the stages of grief. Uh, if somebody dies, for instance, is, is that similar to belief grief that, that we've we've lost something?
1: Yeah, because it's, it's an It's, it's, it's not just a belief. It is a belief that was the underpinning of who we are. It's, you know, it's the pride we feel in, um, you know, our family, our heritage, our country. That pride is, is, is part of the, the identity that we hold to be true about ourselves. And often seeing ourselves as a good person is a really central identity there. And, uh, this, this punctures it a bit.
0: Well, I, I wonder, Hassan, uh, just your, your take on belief grief and how that applies as a historian and how that applies to our struggles to acknowledge some of the hard truths about our country.
2: Well, I tell you, I'm so glad that Dolly named it because <laughs> this is exactly what I have been seeing in my classroom for over 20 years. Uh, When my students, and for various reasons, you can be an African-American, you can be a white student, a person of color. If you've gone through this educational system, there are things that you have been taught, things that you have learned. And when you enter a classroom in which people are dealing with African-American history or the the hard history in a very direct and uh, honest way, what I find is that my students go through the stages of grief. Mm. You know, it's, it's denial at first, and then they get angry that they have been... Uh, denied this history. And then they start bargaining. Well, maybe Miss so-and-so didn't know this. Or my mom didn't know this. And then, you know, I have an office full of tissue because they come in for office hours and now they're depressed. Like, what do we do with this? I don't know what to do. And why did they hold this? And then finally, that fifth stage is acceptance, right? They're like, okay, now we have it. I understand it. I'm okay. I can deal with it. But you know, there's also, and I think this gets back to the present moment, why are we having these conversations? In such an intense way now, because while that fifth stage of grief is acceptance, I've also seen a sixth stage, if you will, and that is action. The students aren't simply accepting this history. They now, once they accept, not accepting it and moving on, once they accept it, they want to do something about it. And that, to me, is really what has roiled the water, if you will.
0: Here's uh, something that Allison wrote on our Facebook page. She said, I started listening to the podcast 1619 to see what all the fuss was about, but also to try and honor the huge stain of slavery and what it means and its impact now. She goes on to say, eye-opening, as you can imagine, and I feel so illiterate to this history. And son, if I could go back to you, is part of our problem is that we, we don't know this history?
2: Part of it is we don't know it because we haven't been taught it. But it's not as though it's a grand secret. It, it, it's really purposeful historical amnesia. We've chosen collectively to ignore those aspects of the past that don't comport with how we want to view ourselves in the present. So, you know, racial violence, lynching, the you know, 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre just occurred. And people are like, I've never heard of Tulsa. Well, the black people in Tulsa heard of Tulsa and black folks around the country knew of Tulsa. So it's not so. So, yes, it is in part that we didn't know. But I think the bigger question is, why don't we know? Why isn't it a part of the 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 curriculum? Why do we have such such yawning gaps in our knowledge about the past?
0: Why, Hassan?
2: I think it's politics, right? It, it, it serves what we know and what we're taught. Serves a political purpose. And and, and I'm not just talking about party purpose. I mean, sometimes it breaks down to that, but it serves a purpose for how we understand how we got here, who has been able to benefit from this, from the American journey and who has suffered from it. Our history provides and the narratives and the stories that we tell ourselves provide a justification for the actions of the past and the beneficiaries in the present. And so if we're able, for example, to say that slavery was terrible, but once it was over, it was just over. And you don't look at the legacies of the institution of slavery, including white supremacy, but also the denial of the ability of African-Americans to accumulate and transfer wealth from generation to generation. Then if you look at the tremendous difference in wealth today in the hands of white families and hands of black families, and you don't understand that legacy and connection because you've been pretending that that history hasn't impacted the present. Then you say, oh, I guess black folk don't know how to save. I guess mm-hmm. they haven't been working hard enough. And so it then it, 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 in that sense, it explains, although wrongly, the inequality that persists today is doing that work.
0: And Dolly, I think of people that, you know, myself included, If if I'm afraid of something, I don't want to deal with it. Is that part of explaining why we, ha- we, meaning Americans, the United States of America, why we struggle to deal with our history? Uh, you wrote about Germany. I've been to Germany. You know, I've been to Auschwitz. I've, I've seen what countries in, in Europe have done to be able to acknowledge their terrible past. And I, it, mm-hmm. it feels like a different kind of conversation. But is fear sort of at the base of what's going on here?
1: It's certainly – there's no doubt it it is a scary thing to do. I think what we lose track of, though, is that it's also a liberating thing to do because – Sassan was explaining, you know, if you don't know what happened on pages one to ninety-nine of a book and then you start reading at page one hundred, you're just forced to fill in the blanks. Like who is that character? Wait, who how does this all fit together? Wait, what what just happened? What was that plot development? And and you'll just fill in the blanks um, because the mind, again, it's sort of like that need to straighten the picture on the wall. The mind will will want things to make sense and rightly or wrongly will come up with explanations for things. Things actually make more sense if you've seen what happened before page 100, hmm. you know, it, it'll all fit together. And so while it might be scary, I think it's also in, in many ways, and I'll just speak from my personal experience, um, I have found myself actually having a sense of... Uh, understanding and, and and control that I didn't have before when I would consider myself to be not only not a historian, not a history buff, basically an ahistorical being in how I engage with the world. Um, but nothing made sense. You look around, there's racial disparities in every meaningful life outcome in the United States, and it just doesn't make sense if you're ahistorical about it.
0: And that is uh, Dolly Chug. She is a social psychologist, professor at the Stern School of Business at NYU, wrote a book that just came out uh, uh, very recently, A More Just Future. Hassan Kwame Jeffries is with us as well, associate professor of history at The Ohio State University, editor of Understanding and Teaching the Civil Rights Movement. Hassan, I want to pick up on something, and I mentioned the fact that that I, I my husband and I, did go to Auschwitz. This was about ten years ago. Um, you know, it, it, an important kind of pilgrimage to sort of help understand the the horror that humans can inflict on each other. But I was also thinking about, you know, people do maybe less and less go to plantations and have weddings and yeah. ceremonies and parties. Yeah. You know, something that never would <laughs> have ever ever taken place at a place like, like Auschwitz. And I just, I, I struggle with this.
2: You and, and, and many of us along with you. Um, I, I the first group I took to a uh, first group of students, I took to James Madison's estate. Um, one of the students then went that summer to Auschwitz and she was blown away. And when we had a conversation about the differences in the treatment. And when she came back, she was like, Dr. Jeffries, I don't understand. And I said, she said the exact same thing that you did. Like she she couldn't imagine picnics in Auschwitz as though in horse races like we would have here. And I think it has everything to do with the fact that we refuse to recognize a plantation. I mean, even the term plantation Mm -hmm. as also being a slave labor camp. So, we've romanticized because we don't want to deal with the harsh reality of how brutal the institution of slavery was. We romanticize this whole thing about what the institution was. This is, you know, today we're talking a lot, Marty, about uh, uh, educational indoctrination. You know, we're living with the remnants of educational indoctrination because that whole view of the plantation as terror, as the, the, as the old South is born of the lost cause mythology so that we would not have to deal with the, hard, the hardships that was the inhumanity that was the institution of slavery. We would be better off not talking about plantations but more accurately describing them as what they were, slave labor camps. Hmm.
0: Let me play a clip from uh, Finding Your Roots. This is a PBS series that's hosted by Henry Louis Gates. And in this uh, episode, he is talking with actor Edward Norton, showing him the 1850 North Carolina census that lists seven people, a man, a woman, and five young girls, that his third generation grandfather held in bondage, and Gates asked Norton how that makes him feel. Let's give it a listen.
3: The, the short answer is these things are uncomfortable, like and you should be uncomfortable with them, like everybody should be uncomfortable with it. it's whether whether it you know it is it is no it's not a judgment on on you and your own life, but it's a judgment on. The, it's a judgment on the history of this country. Absolutely, and it and it and it needs to be acknowledged first and foremost, and then it needs to be contended with. Absolutely. I mean, when you go away from census counts and you and you personalize things, thing, you're you're talking about a, possibly a husband and wife with five girls, mm-hmm. and the and these girls are slaves. You know, right. born into slavery. It's just like you know, and it, born into slavery, and in slavery in perpetuity. Yeah, it's you know it's again you when you when you you read slave age 8 you, you just you want to die
0: and i wonder dolly whether personal stories like that have a bigger mm. impact on us than as as both of them say you know reading census data
1: mm. absolutely i mean i think every study that's been done on things like influence persuasion says that you'll Most likely, on average, be more successful reaching someone through their heart than through their head. Um, And often that means taking things and individualizing them or personalizing them. And that's what one of the uh, things, you know, finding your roots does so well is it takes big macro events and trends and brings it down to the level of an individual. And, and, you know, the brilliance of this show is they bring these celebrities who we, you know, we love their movies, we sure. love their music, we lo- whatever we love about them. Um, and suddenly they go from being just a dot, a point in time, and they become this way for us to thread our way to connecting the dots back, like in this case, you said, three generations mm-hmm. or, or so Um In a way that that's so abstract. I mean, my brain can't do that. And, you know, in the book, in my book, I call it the long time ago illusion, like we, we really, our brains actually have this asymmetric way of seeing the past and future. A year ago in the past, seems like a longer time from now than a year in the future. The, the, The brain literally pushes the past really far away. Um, and that makes it especially hard to connect those dots. I think the show does it brilliantly.
0: And Hassan, the, 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 it raises a question about, you know, are we, how responsible are we for the past? And if we're talking about American history for our our past as a country, um, if someone um, came from a family of enslavers, is that person today, are they responsible for what their ancestors did?
2: Yeah, so I don't think anyone today is responsible for anything uh, that anybody did in the past. Certainly don't bear that responsibility for those actions in the past. And that's often the accusation that you hear today that teachers are teaching little white kids, teaching little Kylie, right, that she's responsible for the institution of slavery. One, that ain't happening. And two, it's because it's not true. But we do have to, as Dolly pointed out, you know, so the way to get people to sort of Uh, change their or or, or begin to think differently about how they understand the past and the present is to reach them through the heart through these stories the power of finding your roots but at a certain point we do have to move from the heart to the head Hmm. we do have to address the issues that were born of the fact that there are people who were holding others in bondage and benefited from that while denying others the opportunity Uh, to be successful in this world. And that created these privileges because that discriminatory treatment did not end in 1865, but continued in new forms up into the present. So our responsibility isn't because of our responsibility to addressing these issues isn't because we're responsible for what happened in the past, but it's because we haven't done the things to correct The legacy and the continued influence and impact of those things that were done in the past that are continuing to create harm and inequality today.
0: Dolly, should we feel guilty about that in uh, the past and especially for white people, white privileged people? And is that a terrible thing to feel guilty
1: actually don't think it is I, that's one of the things I try to offer people with these psychological tools is how to use that emotion when it comes up to to not do what I did on the prairie which was just be like oh my god I can't deal I can't deal um, to be like oh I see that emotion that's come up you know I feel some form of guilt it turns out guilt is a really useful emotion it moves us towards action the kind of action that Hassan was referring to earlier that so many young people are demonstrating for us Um, so, so guilt, if it, if it leaves us in a mire of inaction and, and confusion, not so useful, but guilt that helps us see the world more clearly take action where we can, um, whether that's like big A action or little A action within our families, um, you know, t- t- taking responsibility for the narratives that we're perpetuating that are coming out of our families' histories. That, that I think is actually really useful. And, 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 you know, by the way, one of the things we know from research on emotion is that we systematically overestimate how bad things are going to feel and how long they 're going to feel bad. Um, this is called affective forecasting uh, that we 're bad affective forecasters, so that that feeling of guilt isn 't going to stay with us that long.
0: Well, another short break, and then we 'll get back to our conversation here on the connection in a nutshell, what history and psychology can teach us about the importance of being honest about who we are as a nation, who we are as individuals. Much more after this very short break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Wayne, talking with our guests today on the fact that there has been a lot of fighting over how to teach history in America. Nothing new about that, but we are talking about why it's important to face some of the, the difficult and hard truths about the American story, Can we feel shame and sorrow and anger and still take pride in the things that makes this country great? Talking with Dolly Chug, and she's a social psychologist, professor at the Stern School of Business at NYU, author of A More Just Future. Hassan Kwame Jeffries is associate professor of history at Ohio State University, editor of Understanding and Teaching the Civil Rights Movement. I should add that he is the brother of House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, just to put that out there. Let's talk about patriotism. And and Hassan, how do you define healthy, good patriotism?
2: And I'm glad you qualified it with healthy, good patriotism, uh, because so often when we think about what is patriotic. We think about it in terms of an uncritical, a blind loyalty to the state, state actors and state action. I actually subscribe to a version of patriotism that I think is deeply rooted in the African-American tradition, uh, which has allowed um, African-Americans during the era of slavery to fight uh, for the Union Army, which has allowed African-Americans to take up arms uh, for this nation in every war since and, and before. It's a version of patriotism that says it is not enough to follow blindly but rather to offer critique, to offer analysis so that the nation can become better. This is what Dr. King offered. This is what Malcolm X offered, saying that it's not the two can coexist. You can take pride in that which you and your your people have contributed and even what the nation has done when it's done right. But that doesn't mean that it can't do better. And the only way to do better is to be honest about the things that it's doing wrong.
0: And Dolly, you talk about a kind of gritty patriotism. In fact, you interviewed uh, George Takei um, about mm-hmm. his experience. Um, he was interned along with his family when he was a young boy during the Second World War. How did he how How did he come to his form of patriotism?
1: Yeah, I was really interested in how he thought about his relationship with uh, his country and. As I interviewed him, I was just overwhelmed by this this man who, for the last eighty years, has kind of grieved his childhood, it, it, the loss of his family's home, his loss of their family's income because they were put behind barbed wire and soldiers yeah. with guns. I mean, what were called internment camps were were prisons. and And yet, yet, as he speaks emotionally of that time and the the way it affected his family, he also speaks with such, Love and commitment to making his country better. And as I was listening to him, the word grit just came to my mind. You know, of course, Angela Duckworth, Philadelphia's own um, professor at the University of Pennsylvania, um, her work on grit, which is defined as passion and perseverance in pursuit of a meaningful long-term goal. That's what I kept hearing. I was like, I definitely hear his passion. He certainly has been perseverant and this meaningful long-term goal he has is of this future he sees for this country he loves and and that's as i kept thinking god he's gritty god he's gritty the, the idea of being a gritty patriot which i think is exactly <laughs> what what um, Hassan was describing, the offering of critique and analysis, and it's just bringing in a little bit of the emotional component that it takes to do that, the grit that it takes to do it, um, to be a healthy, good patriot. It's not what you wear, it's not which holidays you celebrate, though those are all fine and good. It's, It's about kind of how you do this. Is it an easy love of country or one that you're willing to work for?
0: And I wonder, Hassan, for people that see the the, the Confederate flag, for statues of, of uh, you know, soldiers and generals during our American Civil War, see that as a sign of their own form of patriotism. What do you say to them?
2: Well, I'm going to have to defer to Dolly on the psychology of Fair supporting fools who. You know, who were insurrectionists. But it's out there. It's out there. But it's out there. Yeah. No, I mean, I I, I think, you know, I, I think we have to have an honest, this is where having some actual history would be helpful um, and yeah. understanding what it is that those who seceded from the United States or attempted to were fighting for. Uh, I think sometimes, you know, it, there, are, there are it's the importance of the appeals to the heart, but sometimes you just have to lay out some facts and let folk yeah. deal with and wrestle with them you know, on their own terms. I, with students coming into my classrooms and talking about that very thing, I can't. Before them, kids, white kids coming from you know rural Ohio or suburbs of Ohio, I can't walk in on the first day and say, "Hey, this is what the Confederacy was fighting for." I have to let them read the words of Confederates themselves, th- so they can absorb them in their own terms, in their own words. Then we can have a conversation about it. And so I think sometimes it is important to sort of lay out, lay all the cards on the table and have a discussion once you can kind of have some common agreement about the facts.
0: Well, I wonder, too, and maybe you can put on your psychologist hat for us, Dolly, is that when you lose a war, as the South did, then you create a kind of nostalgia we've been talking about or a mythology about how perhaps you didn't lose after all.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, we are not wired to um, see the other side. We're not wired to uh, give up power. We're not wired to, um, uh, you know, um, confess our own mistakes. I mean, these are all things that we are wired not to do. But that's why we have systems that are are Mm -hmm. supposed to be wired to go against that human impulse. And I couldn't agree more with Hassan. That I, and I didn't mean to suggest that we can only do this by reaching hearts and mm. minds, um, hearts instead of minds. In fact, what I what I um, have, have argued is that uh, the research on social movements that shows that when you have both heat and light, you know, heat is where you disrupt, um, light is when you're sort of more incremental and meet people where they are. And, and those those scholars have shown that when we have both heat and light we make more progress than when we have you know mostly heat or mostly light and And my hypothesis is that uh heat changes systems and light changes minds huh. and that's why we need both in play at the same time.
0: do you think we're at that point hassan of of heat and light
2: I think we are, we always have people who are we We look back at history. We've always had people who have been willing to generate some heat. And that is not going to go away anytime soon. I mean, that's certainly part of the African-American experience, the African-American freedom struggle, creating heat. Now, whether or not you can bring some light, I think is dependent upon space that is created and opportunities that are created. And sometimes there's only a sliver. Sometimes there's a little bit more space. I don't think that that space in which the light can exist is constant in its size i think it it, it 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 sometimes the aperture if you will opens and sometimes it closes mm-hmm. i think we're in a moment where it's shrinking where it's closing after having been thrust open wider mm-hmm. than we have seen after the summer of 2020
0: well because and let me just pick up on that hassan which is the sort of uh, ebb and flow i guess of history where things open and then they close and then they open and then they close
2: I like that better than thinking about history as being cyclical, because in many ways, these are extensions building upon continuities and disruptions. Uh, And so within that, there is absolutely an ebb and flow because you have people who are trying to change the status quo and people who are trying to maintain the status quo. And that is an inherent um, tension that is, is, is always around.
0: Do you think we're a better country today than we were, let's say, 100 years ago or 50 years ago, Hassan?
2: My brother is the leader of the <laughs> Democratic Party in Congress. Now. Of course, we are in a much better place um, than we were 150 years ago. I mean, that is that is undeniable to be sure. But I think the question is can we could we have been further along than we are if we had done things differently? Yes, had the resistance not been so intense. Yes and can we and should we be further going forward i think the answer to that is yes as well
0: i wanted to uh, and i'm toggling back and forth between kind of history and psychology but uh, to you mm-hmm. dolly about whether is it helpful to think of america as a as a family i mean we are we're all here together you know whether we whether we like it or not <laughs> And that, you know, in family systems, when you don't deal with the truth, when there is abuse, when there is neglect, you Mm. know, when there are terrible things, families fall apart um, or they do terrible things or people are really hurt and made dysfunctional because of things like that. Is that helpful in terms of thinking of America as a family? Maybe dysfunctional or not? That's
1: interesting. Yeah. You know, I guess it is as long as we... I think the problem is we've had the Instagrammed version of family is how we've thought about it. So the Instagrammed version, the kind of with the filters and everything, is one in which where there are problems, we don't show them. We don't address them. Um, and what you're describing, the more honest version, you know, the, the Dr. Phil version <laughs> is one in which we we are willing to address where there's problems and we don't have a sense of entitlement that we can just assume we will, this family will survive. Not every family makes it forward to the next generation as a functional family or as a family where everyone's still speaking to each other. Um, And I think we have to realize that we have to work for that and not assume it's just going to happen without some work. Hassan, what do you think about that?
2: I think not all family members need to be invited to dinner. (laughs) I think we have Mm -hmm. to... Oh, well...
0: (laughs) you got to explain that to us, (laughs) Hassan.
2: I'm just saying, I mean, sometimes, you know, you have some folk (laughs) who are just so intransigent that they're more destructive uh, around the dinner table than they are, you know, had they they been left outside. Um, And I think that's because, and I was reminded earlier today by a dear friend uh, about something James Baldwin said. Uh, He said that we can disagree and still love each other unless... Your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity and right to exist. And so if a family member is denying your very right to exist, your humanity, then I think that family member has forfeited their right to sit at that welcome table.
0: This is a little bit of a segue here, but to you, Dolly, again, you have written in your book about that we all have multiple identities and, and we have these, mm. this social identity that, that connects us to, the show is called The Connection, that connects us to <laughs> to each other. Um, but that can also create, you know, tribalism and, and problems. Mm. Take that apart for us and maybe put it back together.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say our social identities connect us to sort of our close others, uh, the, the, meaning the people cl- who are more like us. Um, and distance us from people who we aren't identifying with. They can very much pull us apart. Um, what, what, what we know is that the way to, to break through that is to create like an overarching identity, a superordinate identity is, is, is the jargon, and superordinate identities, and that could be an identity as an American, um, does pull us closer and reduce that tribalism. We have to be operating, though, off the same script. And I think that that's where the sort of suppression of factual, accurate historical information is, is, is not only, you know, kind of cutting the script in half, it's, it's diminishing the trust because it's, 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 it's saying to the other, the people who have a different identity, your stories don't matter. The, the reality we live in today, which is a direct result of, of those stories, doesn't matter.
0: I probably buried the lead here, Hassan, but but um, how do you define critical race theory and why should it be taught Mm -hmm. and how should it be taught?
2: Well, critical race theory, despite all the hype, despite the political hysteria that has been generated around it, is really quite simple. It, It simply is a framework that says in order to understand the past and make sense of the present, you have to take seriously the role of race and racism in the past and in the present. That's it. It ain't that complicated. (laughs) Just take seriously the role of race and racism. It has nothing to do with, you know, these people are better than other people and inherent racism and white supremacy. No, no, no. It's just how has race and racism shaped America in the past and in what ways does it continue to inform our systems and structures in addition to individual behavior in the present?
0: Are we a racist country?
2: we are a country that was born in racism, steeped in racism that attached itself to the ideology of white supremacy to justify an economic system that was based upon the exploitation of workers of African descent. Individually, and we we still live with the legacy and a belief, deeply tied belief in white supremacy. Individually, no one is born uh, with racial prejudice, not a single person in this world is ever born with racial racial prejudice. But we are born into a country that embraces the ideology of racism and white supremacy, both, implicitly, both you know, in, in, in implicit and explicit ways. And that informs how we walk through the world.
0: And, Dolly, well, I'm looking at the clock here. We are also a land of immigrants. You and your family immigrated uh, to the United States. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, proudly say we're a, a land of immigrants. But, again, if you look at some of the history, the mistreatment of the Irish, the Italians, the Jews, what's happening to people of color now trying to come to America— um, how does I guess the, the our, our notion of, of our ourselves as this you know land of immigrants how can we improve upon that
1: well again it's I, I think there's an opportunity here to remember that not everyone you know immigrated here they they were brought here forcefully right. um, there were people who were already here when the immigrants arrived so so even our 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 mental model is is just Taking a little bit of the story, not all of the story. But the other thing is, you know, I learned recently that. Uh, while I was writing this book that even my family's arrival in this country which I thought was like oh let's go get engineers from India and you know that was my father and and warmly welcome them was actually the opposite it was a direct result of civil rights legislation that led to changes in the immigration laws um, to make those less colorblind I'm sorry more colorblind in terms of like Europe versus Asia but in fact there was lots of debate and resistance against doing that Hmm. Um, I didn't know that growing up I had a different narrative
0: well I wish we could go on but we have to leave it there my thanks to both of you Dolly Chug thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection thank you for having me you're welcome and Hassan Kwame Jeffries same to you thanks for joining
2: us Absolutely, my honor.
0: Absolutely, to us as well. For more information about this program, you can download a podcast wherever you get your podcast, and we do podcast this show. You can check us out on Instagram at the Connection, WHY. You can sign up for our newsletter, WHYY.org slash the Connection. One more, you can email us at theconnection at whyy.org. Yes, we're called The Connection. Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of Radio Times, the show produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray Betzler. I'm Marty Moss Thank you so much for joining us.